Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad to have you here at New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. And um, we hope that you are finding your way around as well as you can. If you need any help, then just ask someone nearby. They'll probably know the answer to your question. But we're glad to have you here. Psalm 93 is what we're looking at this morning. You can see it on page 6 of your bulletin. And this short little psalm is the beginning of a set of psalms with a common theme. They, they cover the theme of God as king. And that's a very important theme in the psalms, even if it's not one of the more numerous themes in the psalms. It's extremely important, I think, because it, it proclaims the reality of God's role in the universe in all of creation, as the basis for all of the other themes that we read in the Psalms. And so the laments and the praises and the thanksgivings and the confidences that we express in the Psalms, all of those can be done on the basis of God being our King. And so I have a very brief little grammar lesson for you as we start to read the Psalm. I know that excites you on a Sunday morning to have a grammar lesson, but, but here it is real quickly. This psalm begins with a proclamation. The Lord reigns. And it is, in Hebrew, what scholars of such things, which I am not, but I understand from Hebrew scholars, that this is what they call a prophetic perfect tense. That means that it is not only past tense like a perfect tense would be, like, I have eaten lunch, but rather it's prophetic perfect. That means it talks about something that's in the past, that's complete in the past, but has a future fulfillment yet to come. And that future fulfillment is so certain as to have immediate relevance today. And it's that immediate relevance that the truths of this psalm establish for you and for me. So this short psalm is Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would gather with us and grant to our hearts and our minds understanding of your word here, and we pray that you'd increase our faith to believe your word, that we might see how you do indeed reign over all of your creation, over all of the world, and that because of that, we might have trust and confidence in you. We pray that we would By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's an Olympic summer, and the Olympics began this weekend. I imagine some of you watched Olympics Friday night and Saturday, and others of you probably don't really care. But you must be few and far between, because the Olympics are a big deal. And so, in the spirit of that, I have an Olympic story for you to begin this morning. Daryl Pace is one of the Olympian champions that you probably have never heard of. Daryl was, in the 1980s, the the reigning king of archery. He had six national championships and two world titles to his credit. 
when he then won two Olympic individual gold medals in archery. He would have won a third, presumably, except in 1980 the U.S. team boycotted the Moscow Olympics and he wasn't able to go and defend his first gold, but he won a second gold in 1984. He was so prominent in the archery world that he was declared by the powers that be, whatever those powers are, to be the greatest archer of the 20th century. So Daryl Pace was asked to come to New York City's Central Park and put on a demonstration of his archery skills one time, and so he did that. And he set up in Central Park, and a crowd began to gather, and there was even news coverage there. Some of the local news stations sent cameras out to, to cover what he was doing and to see his remarkable skill. And he set up his target and stepped back to 30 yards distance, which was, I guess, is the standard distance for an archery competition. And he pulled out his steel-tipped hunting arrows and began one after another after another to plunk right into the bullseye of his target from 30 yards away. It was an impressive display of skill. But even that perfection on his part began to get a little bit monotonous in the eyes of the viewers and the crowd that was around. And so he did what a good archer will do. He reached into his duffel bag and he pulled out an apple. And everybody knows what an apple means in an archer's world because they've seen Robin Hood and so they know. And so the crowd, seeing this apple, heard him call for a volunteer and they were all a little bit squeamish. Nobody really wanted to do this because they expected they knew what this archer was going to ask them to do. And one of the news coverage reporters, recognizing that if nobody volunteered, then the whole story would just kind of fall flat. Well, he didn't want that to happen, and so Josh Howell, an ABC News correspondent, volunteered his own services. He took the apple from Daryl Pace, who explained to him, I just need for you to to carry that apple down to the target. You don't have to put it on your head. Just hold it in the flat palm of your hand and the other palm under it. Hold it still and stand sideways in front of the target and hold it out just in front of the target and be still. And so he did that. And as cameras were rolling, Daryl Pace pulled back his bow and let it go, and the apple exploded and the arrow plunged into the target. It was an amazing picture, really, of an ordinary man trusting in one who had demonstrated extraordinary capability. But then, Josh Howell's ABC cameraman squeamishly came up to him and said, Josh, I'm really sorry, but as soon as Mr. Pace loaded his bow with the arrow, my camera malfunctioned, and I did not get that on tape. Would you mind doing it again? I don't know if he did it again or not. This Psalm 93 is a kingship psalm. It's a, it's a royal psalm. It's a psalm that helps us to sing. That's what the Israelites did with psalms. It helps us to sing about a truth that all of the Bible declares, and that is that there is only one king. His name is Yahweh, and he reigns. Now, as Christians, we say that we believe this, but it means something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit squeamish, a little bit nervous if we really think about it and admit it. We have to trust him. We have to trust his extraordinary ability with our very lives. And not just once as we smile for the camera, but again and again 
and again throughout all of our lives. We all put our trust so easily. We, we place our confidence in the mundane things of life. You know, things like the predictability of our routine or the, the familiarity of our neighborhood. Those sorts of things give us comfort and confidence and a sense of trust. But the Bible presents a picture of a reigning king, Yahweh, and of the enemies that oppose him, a picture of such things that should cause us to take a close look to examine who we trust and why we trust them. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Do you believe that? And if you do, how deeply do you trust him? Josh Howell would never have volunteered, you know, if, if he had not seen with his own eyes the remarkable reign of an Olympic champion. And just so this psalm puts before your eyes the remarkable reign of your God, and it says, trust him. You should be confident in Yahweh's reign for many reasons. One of them is for what he wears. I'm on an a email listserv with about 40 or 50 other pastors. I know that's probably a really exciting thought to you. What do 40 or 50 pastors email each other about? And this uh, past week, one of them emailed with this question. What do you guys wear when you preach? He was just curious. He wanted to know and, and kind of evaluating his own practices and, and what do other pastors do, other preachers do, what are their customs. And as you might imagine, a whole string of answers began to unfold after his question. We all have comments on fashion. And most of them had something to do with the context of the ministry in which you're working and even the style of your own personal ways. Some guys touted the, the nobility of simple khakis and a button-down shirt. That's what they wear to preach, and on a fancy day, they might wear a jacket in addition to all that. Others went much more casual. Blue jeans and a t-shirt, some of them insisted, that's all I ever wear, and I'll never wear anything else. In fact, one of them even said, I used to wear a robe, but I've repented of that long ago. And then, of course, all us robe guys chimed in, and explained our own reasons. You know, it, it, the robe conveys an office that God has put me in. The robe tells you, my hearers, that I'm actually under someone else's authority, and it's not my authority with which I speak. And the robe tells me that I'm under someone else's righteousness. It's not my righteousness I have to offer to you. And the robe actually also prevents you from the temptation of judging me for the cheap or expensive clothes that I might wear. It's got practical reasons too, doesn't it? But the conclusion at the end of all this email string discussion was, you know, it really just depends on where you are and who you are. Either way, whatever it is, what you wear says something about the role that you play in the place where you serve. And this psalm suggests that what God wears conveys his role and so it establishes our confidence in him. So what does he wear? Well, he wears majesty and strength and permanence and eternity. He's robed in majesty, the psalmist tells us so poetically. What does that mean? What is majesty after all? Majesty is greatness, splendor, Authority, 
Majesty is regal dignity and stateliness and augustness. Majesty is grandeur and vastness and magnificence and sovereignty and loftiness and imposing character and supreme royal stature. It's all of those things and so much more, isn't it? It's, it's, there's hardly an end to the words that we could put to this word majesty and the concept that it tells us about. It's even a title that we often, as a human race, have given to people that we've deemed to be important, and we call them His Majesty or Her Majesty. And in the end, at the later stages of that life, and surely much earlier than that, we all realized that that was just wishful thinking. They were just another person like we are. Majesty is something that every language and every culture throughout world history has tried to describe with its creative words. But in the vanity of the effort, in the end, they all turn to creation to find it. The Lord is robed in it. He also, though, has put on strength as his belt, the psalmist tells us. That means that his reign as king is not just that of a so-called sovereign who's been appointed by the whims of men, or even by the descent of an important family. He's not just that. He actually has strength. He has power to make his kingdom come. And then, as if those two things weren't enough, what he wears is not simply the attributes that men might covet, but it's even attributes that only God can actually have, an attribute like permanence or immutability, you might even call it. Yes, the world is established, he says. It shall never be moved. The world is always changing. You know, we we look around the creation, we see it's always changing from the seasons to problems that are in it. The world is always changing, but it can never be moved except by God himself who created it. And the scripture speaks of the world as being his footstool. It's where he props up his feet, so to speak, to declare where he is. And it never changes. We're always changing. We're fickle and we're unsure of ourselves. We're always changing our minds. But he never changes. He never even changes what he wears. He's permanent. And he's also worn it forever. Verse 2, look at that. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In other words, he is, as the book of Revelation tells us, the Alpha and the Omega. He is what Daniel, the prophet, tells us, the Ancient of Days. He is the one who never was not and who never will not be. He's eternal. He's everlasting. He always has been. He wears his attributes. That's what he's robed in. That's what he's clothed in. That's what he wears. Our women's Bible study over this summer has been studying the attributes of God, and it's an excellent study. They've been studying it in terms of prayer life and how God's attributes shape or should shape our prayer life. And it's a very wise pathway for prayer because it turns your attention above your needs. Not that your needs are not important. They are but it turns your attention above your needs to the much greater picture of God's royal worthiness of our worship. 
what he wears, if you can see it, should cause for you great confidence if you trust in him. Or it may cause for you great fear if you don't. Because it's not just what he wears that establishes him as king, but it's also how he compares that makes his reign as king to be clear. Now, I have to apologize to you for just a moment for my bad rhyming here. I know this is kind of cheap poetry, what he wears and how he compares, it rhymes. I didn't mean for it to rhyme. I wasn't looking for a silly preacher trick with that. It was just the right word. These were the words that seemed to fit the context of what's happening here. Because in verses 3 and 4, a comparison is made. The floods are mighty, and God is mighty, but he is mightier. In very typical poetic fashion, the the psalm here describes a part of the creation. It takes a part of the creation and puts it into the picture of what the psalmist is after and describes it poetically. Here are the floods, the great waters, lifting up their voice, lifting up their roaring, lifting up their thunder. And you can imagine in your own experience, in your mind, in your memory, of seeing such things, of powerful waters rising up and lifting up, roaring and thundering and with a great voice. And that's the picture, of course, that the psalmist gives us here of these floods. And some, in looking at this, suggest that it simply means that God is more powerful than his creation. That's something that verse 1 already suggested to us. And it would make a lot of sense for the psalm to just take that idea and elaborate on it a little bit in a further another verse with more poetic expression like the floods lifting up like this that would make a lot of sense but it seems to me that there's there's actually more at work here than just that this is after all a royal psalm it's a psalm that explains to us god's role as king that he as a king rules and defends and conquers that's what a king does right as far as we know we We don't know kings in this country in a formal sense, but we know through history that this is what kings do. They rule and defend and they conquer. And so what is it with the floods here? Why why floods, psalmist? Why are you writing about water here? Well, several other scriptures help us to understand. In Psalm 65, we read about God's protecting and caring for his people Israel throughout all of their days. And in that psalm, God stilled the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the turmoil of the nations. That is, all those nations that had opposed the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness to the promised land, God stilled the roaring of the waters, the turmoil of the nations who would stand against his people. Isaiah 17 says it as well. The nations thunder and roar like the thundering sea, like mighty waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. And then the book of Revelation, of course, which we study over the past, this, the past year or so. You remember what happened in the book of Revelation. From where did the enemy of God arise? Do you remember? The beast from the sea who rose up out of the sea to oppose God so prominently. And in the end, when God had put all of his enemies away, what was the thing that disappointed you most about the picture of the heavens and the earth in the end? There was no more sea. I think there will be an ocean in the new heavens and the earth. But there was no more sea because God had eliminated all of his enemies. 
And so this psalm should help us to recognize that Yahweh is mightier than all of his enemies. That is, he's mightier than any who would oppose the coming of his righteous and gracious kingdom. The Westminster standards are the theological standards of our denomination. Many of you are very familiar with them. And they consist of a a bunch of paragraphs covering different theological topics, but they also include some questions, catechism questions towards the end. And in the shorter catechism, which was intended for our, our growth in grace, there's one question that goes like this. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? A previous question, you may know, had already asked, what are the offices in which Christ Jesus serves us in his role as redeemer? He serves us as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the the next question is, how does he execute the office of a king? And it tells us there are three ways in which he does that. He subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us. And he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Those are the three things that he does, according to Westminster, to serve as our king. So what does that mean? Especially that part about his and our enemies. What does that mean exactly? Does it mean that he has enemies and you have enemies? And now that you're on his side, he'll defeat your enemies along with his own just because, well, you're on his side. Is that what it means? I don't think that's what it means. I don't think that's what it means at all. In this polarized age that we live in, it's so easy to see the polarization among us as human beings, isn't it? In this polarized age, people, Christians included, are, I think, too intent on identifying and naming the enemies of God. Those people are God's enemies. Surely they are, or those are. And in many ways, it depends on the culture in which you live as to which enemies you're going to identify, which ones seem to be most pressing to you. And we like to identify enemies, but the enemies that militate against the coming of the kingdom of God are very real. The the Bible identifies them in broader terms. The world, the flesh, and the devil, it tells us. That's a pretty broad sweep that covers a lot of possibilities, but there are any number of specifics that we could easily identify and recognize as enemies of God's kingdom. Things like abortion and pornography. Those are no doubt enemies of the coming of the kingdom of God. Things like economic exploitation and racial injustice. Those are no doubt enemies of God's coming kingdom. And things like the abuse of civil authority. That's one we love. Or how about the rejection of civil authority? Both of those are enemies of the coming of God's kingdom. And sometimes the enemies in the newspaper headlines are just too much for us to bear. They seem overwhelming. But sometimes the enemy actually makes itself known a bit closer to home, doesn't it? What was that first thing that the catechism told us that Jesus does as king? The first thing was he subdues us to himself. Why does he do that? Because, as Paul writes, when we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You know, before we can, with humility, recognize the enemies that are out there somewhere, we, of course, have to first 
be well aware of the enemy that is in here. And that can cause you to despair. But no matter how mighty the flood of enemies might be, God is mightier still. And that should change the way that you think of your chances. When I was in high school, I would spend a number of days in the summertime playing basketball at the gymnasium at at my public high school. The the coach came and opened it up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday to Friday, and left it open until 7 p.m. And guys would come, girls would come, and we'd play basketball there in the gym. And we'd spend hours playing pickup games, and somebody who wasn't playing would call next, and they would get the next game. They'd get to take on the winners of the current game. And every now and then, some occasional sort of celebrities would show up. It, It might be an alumni of our school, an alumnus, I guess is the proper word, of our school who had been a really good basketball player and maybe even gone off to play in college somewhere and now they're back in town and they came for a friendly game and they were kind of a celebrity to us. Sometimes it might be an SMU basketball player. There were a couple of those who would show up every now and then and we would all marvel at their presence among us. But then on one hot summer day, a huge pickup truck pulled up outside and parked beside the gym and a very large man stepped out and walked into the gym wearing his Louisiana Tech t-shirt. His name was Carl Malone. And for you who know basketball, maybe you know Carl Malone, all six feet, 10 inches, 280 pounds of NBA Hall of Famer, one of the 50 greatest all-time basketball players in the history of the world, this man was. And For some reason, he was in town, and he showed up at our gymnasium, and he came in with his shoes on, ready to play a friendly game of pickup basketball. And the scrawny teenager who had next picked him. And that teenager then relaxed because he knew that he had control of the court for the rest of the afternoon or at least for as long as Mr. Mighty Malone hung around, because he's mightier than anyone else on the floor. You should trust in the Lord's reign, because he's mightier than all of his enemies. And your trust of him, because of how he compares, should grow when you consider as well where he resides. Verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. You know, when, when Jesus rebuked Satan in that scripture reading earlier for tempting him with the kingdoms of the world, he instructed his enemy with these words, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, there's only one king. And whatever kingdoms, so-called, you, Satan, claim, when Yahweh comes to reside, he will reshape it with holiness. Because holiness befits his house. Only what is altogether distinct from Only what is altogether more noble than all that's broken in this world, only those things are actually becoming of where God resides. 
It's a, a constant thread in the kingdom theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? That God is subduing and conquering and restraining all that opposes him, including you and me. He's constantly restraining, conquering, subduing all of those things, and his house will be fit for him. It will be holy. Now, sometimes Christians lose sight of why they work in this world. Why, why do I have the job that I have or, or the job that I want to have? Why should I want to have it? And we lose sight of the whys about that idea of calling and vocation in this world. And it might be that you have not yet started on your career. Maybe you're a young person who's anticipating a coming career in the future and you're wondering, what should it be? And maybe that, maybe that you're well into your career, that, that you're older and, and you've had a career for quite some time, but you begin to wonder, why am I doing what I'm doing? We all do that at times, don't we? And, and we, we question ourselves and our vocation, our calling, and we wonder why, why? Why? What's the purpose of these things? Well, there are practical purposes to it, for sure. You know, you, you work to provide for your material needs, yes, for sure. And you work to satisfy yourself with meaningful employment, with meaningful tasks and, and accomplishments. You do those things, for sure. That's a good thing. But there's more to it. There's more to vocation and calling in God's economy and His kingdom. That is, we work to advance his trustworthy decrees. We work to make His righteousness known. We work to bring His kingdom on earth. Just as we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth. Because that's where God wants His, his will to be done. His kingdom is coming on earth. And this means that wherever this king takes up residence, the shape of things begins to change. On the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt, there is a city called Zabalin. Its more common name is Trash Town, or Garbage City. It's named for the occupation of the thousands of people who reside there. These are the people who, every day, ride their trucks into the city of Cairo throughout all of its neighborhoods and gather the thousands and pounds and tons of garbage that collects in that vast city every day. They go and collect the garbage. They bring it back to Trash Town, and it piles up in mountains as heaps of, of trash and refuse and waste. And there they separate it, they recycle it, they keep it. They are the uneducated, the unloved, the forgotten, the lowest of the low people of Egypt. These are the Zabalin of Egypt. And three decades ago, a Coptic Egyptian Christian pastor moved into town. His name is Father Saman. He moved in, and along with him, Yahweh apparently took up residence. And now, three decades later, most of the people there are Christians. They are Egyptian Coptic Christians, these people. A few believers gathered together with Father Saman in his apartment in 1981 to pray and to study the Bible and to talk about the coming of the kingdom of God. And now thousands of people gather together for worship under Father Saman's leadership. And you'll be amazed at where they gather. They gather in an amphitheater cut out of 
one of the rock quarries, which has long since been abandoned, a quarry that was used for the building of the Egyptian pyramids. This is where thousands of Christians now gather for worship because God moved into the neighborhood. And now, because God resides there, the garbage collectors disperse every day out into the neighborhoods of Cairo, considering themselves to be missionaries. It's ridiculous. It's remarkable and it's amazing. It's astonishing to consider that when God moved into town, everything changed. It's the very place where the Lord's people, Israel, years and years, thousands of years ago, were enslaved for hundreds of years, and now the Lord lives there. And the transformation that happens when the kingdom of God comes is the very thing that's happening there. It's the very thing that happens when God comes to reside here, when God comes to reside in this theater, in this city, in this state, in this place, when God comes to reside in your family and in your life, transformation begins to come. Why? Because the Lord reigns, and you can trust His reign. Yahweh is King. He he reigns over all of His creation and over everything and everyone in it. So, trust Him. The attributes that He wears... They establish his role as king. He compares mightier mightier than any of his enemies, and that makes clear his reign as king. And where he resides, the transformational holiness of his house and his people confirms his reign as king. The Lord reigns in majesty, in strength, in permanence, and for eternity. So put your confidence in Him, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.